Well, good morning again, everyone. Thank you uh, so much for letting my family and I go on a vacation uh, after Christmas. It was a blessing to see our family, but it is uh, very good to be home. Thank you to all of you who made worship happen on Sunday while I was gone, too. I totally was derelict in my duties. I promised people I was going to do things to prepare for worship, and you know how vacation goes. You forget whether it's Tuesday or Sunday, and... And well, everything seemed to happen okay, as far as I can tell. God's word was still preached. You still received the sacrament, and God be praised for that. Um, I'm excited for 2024. Um, Every year we've had a theme for our worship, and uh, this year is no different. Remember last year we said our theme was back to the basics. We were going back to the very foundational truths of Christianity, studying what the gospel is, the Ten Commandments, this sort of thing. Two years ago, we did a life lived in Christ. We talked about the fullness of not only being contained in the love of Christ, but also being that love to the world, being Christ's hands and feet and mouth to the world. Uh, This year is a special year for our congregation because we are going to have our 25th anniversary as a congregation in September. If you have not marked that day on your calendar, you definitely should so you can be there. Um, But as as part of that being kind of the focal point of our year, I wanted to focus on um, the idea of of building foundations for a church that will last for generations. And that's going to be kind of our theme for this entire year. Uh, Like we've done the last couple years, we'll start the year by studying the gospel. Uh, This time, the gospel of Luke will continue by picking up at chapter 10, where we were uh, last year. We'll then go into the book Acts after Easter, uh, like we did last year, seeing how God worked through his church to spread the gospel and seeing how we can learn from it. But then we start to go in a little bit of a different direction, focusing on this idea of the foundation of a church that can last for generations. We're going to do a series called Diverse Church. Uh, where we're going to look at the diversity that God has given us in our city and our congregation, and we're going to see how, although diversity can be a blessing, it also can be a real challenge. And by the way, when I say diversity, I don't just mean what most people think of when they hear diversity, which is racial diversity. We will talk about that, but there's far more diversity in our congregation than just the color of your skin. We have old people and young people, lifelong Christians and brand new Christians, men and women, We're going to talk about all those different diversities and how God brings those different people together into one church. Then we'll talk about how to grow. We'll do a series called How to Grow and Why We Don't. As we think about what it means to build a congregation for the future, we want to talk about what spiritual growth for a person looks like. I think every person in this room, if you call yourself a Christian, wants to grow in their faith, but very often we don't. And so we're going to study both how to do that and the obstacles, why we don't usually grow as Christians. Then as our anniversary service comes in September, we're going to do a a series called What the World Needs Now, how we uniquely have the answer. We're going to look at the biggest questions that the world is asking and how we uniquely as a church have the answers to those questions that are gospel-focused, biblically-based. And then finally, we're going to finish the year out with a series called Built on the Rock, building a church that's going to last generations. We're going to talk about the characteristics of a congregation that does not last just for 25 years, but lasts for a century or more. So I'm excited for this year with you to go through these series, and that's a little teaser for you to make sure you're coming back to worship every Sunday throughout the year. But for today, we have the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. You have note sheets. If you didn't grab one, you're very welcome to go grab one anytime. I will read the text for us, and then we'll study it together. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? 
Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. So I know that the majority of people don't make New Year's resolutions. Um, as much as New Year's resolutions is kind of a thing this time of year, obviously, the statistics say that the majority of people don't make New Year's resolutions. Uh, however, I, I would assume, or at least intuit, that even if you didn't put something on paper or specifically lay out a goal for this year, you do have a sense of the newness of life, the new beginning of a new year. There's a freshness to January that can make us think about what are we going to do this year, even if we don't put it in a specific sentence, a specific New Year's resolution. What I would guess is that every one of us wants to accomplish or be something great this year. Whether it's something great in a, a macro sense, like big with the boss or with our company or on the internet or just something small, like I want to be great in my family as a husband, a wife, a mother, father, whatever. We desire to be great. And that greatness, I think, shows itself in two ways we think about becoming great. Um, one I'll call um, doing resolutions, and another one becoming resolutions. So even if it's not a specific resolution, we have this idea that I want to do something with this year. It's a specific one-off accomplishment that I want to have. It can be something as dumb as I want to travel this year, or it can be something even more profound, like I want to get married this year. It's this one-off action, this thing that I do, this thing I accomplish this year. But I think the majority of our resolutions or our goals for 2024 are becoming resolutions. Becoming resolutions. It's where we want to actually become something for the future, not just for 2024, but for all the years that come after. I don't just want to lose weight for 2024 and go back to my ballooned body in 2025. No, I want to keep it off. I want to keep going where I'm going. I don't want to be a person who drink so much in 2025, just took 2024 off. No, I wanna, I wanna cut back on my addictions or, or whatever the thing may be. Like we, we wanna become a certain type of person. And as much as I like to be a critic of human nature because you know, we're corrupt and, and all that, I actually think we as a society have put our finger on something really interesting when we make becoming resolutions. We realize that if you want to become something or someone great, you need to put in the time in the little things of life. It's not one big event that's going to make you a great person. It's going to be the little things day by day that you do, the little practices you do that make you into a great person. We're going to meet a person in the text today that Jesus thought was great. Her name was Mary of Bethany. And Jesus actually says about Mary of Bethany that truly I tell you, wherever this gospel, like the gospel of Christianity, the gospel of the good news of Jesus, is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I don't know what your goals are for 2024, but I'm guessing none of you were like, I'm gonna have a story that everyone ever will at least hear once. That's a pretty high goal, and yet that is what Jesus says Mary is like. And we're gonna to learn today are what are the little things that Mary did that got her to be that kind of person of whom Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told. So we're going to break the teaching today into three parts. It breaks up pretty easily because we have three characters in the narrative, Martha, Mary, and Jesus. So if you're taking notes with us, Martha is the first point. Let's focus on her first. In many ways, Martha is something of the modern Western ideal uh, of a woman. 
She is a person who is very capable, very industrious, very intelligent. She is the type of person that you want to be around. And we can see this right from the text. As we look at Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. This is interesting to me because what we know from the other parts of the Bible is that Martha was not the only person who lived in this house. Mary, her sister, also lived in this house. And Lazarus, her brother, also lived in this house. And yet, when Luke records this for us, he calls it Martha's house. Now, what does exactly that mean? Does that mean that Martha had the title to the home, or was it that she was just married to somebody who owned the home and she was effectively running the joint? I don't know, and I don't think it really matters. Martha was in charge. She was in control. She had things under wraps. She was the one who was taking care of things. She was an industrious, intelligent, capable woman. And she was really good at it. And we can actually see this again in the text. If we go to verse 40, we see that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. This word preparations is really interesting in the Greek. It's a Greek word, diakonia, which is where we get our English word that you might might have heard, deacon. It literally means service. Um, And if you know uh, what the word deacon is usually used for in church contexts, you know that it is serving for those who are in need, for the poor. So the work that Martha was doing, the preparations that she was doing, they were good work. They were serving work. They were generous work. They were what we might call church work. She was industrious, she was capable, she was intelligent, and she was doing really good things. We also know something else about Martha. We know that Martha was a very faithful and strong Christian. The only other place that Martha shows up in the Bible is at the account of Lazarus' death and subsequent resurrection in John chapter 11. You remember this story? Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and so he says, we'll go in a few days. And when he goes, he finds out that Lazarus has died and everyone is weeping around the tomb. And Martha comes out to Jesus, and let's pick it up right there in John chapter 11. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And of course, Martha's answer is, yes, I believe. Martha, in a time of crisis, was willing to go toe-to-toe with the Son of God and quote Bible passages at him. And this was a woman who knew the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. She was a biblically very literate and intelligent woman. So put all this together. Here is a woman who is capable, she is industrious, she is intelligent, she is faithful. In many ways, Martha was the ideal church member. I mean, this is the type of person that you pray for if you're in church work. A person who has gifts and is willing to use them, who is deep in their scriptures on a regular basis, devotionally, and spewing out those words to the people around them. I bet that's not what you thought of Martha, if you have a cursory knowledge of this story. I think for many of us, maybe me included as I grew up, I kind of thought as Martha's like sort of the bad character in story. Mary's the good one, Martha's the the bad one. I, I don't think so. I actually think in many ways we can identify with Martha. And many of you, as I look out, are very faithful in your work to serve your family, serve this congregation. I know how the word of God goes into your ears and out of your mouths. You have gifts, talents, beyond compare. I mean, what a blessing we have in this congregation. And yet we find, 
is that Martha was maybe the ideal church member, but she also had some serious problems. Again, you can look at it in the text, verse 40. It says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. This word distracted is fine. It's a good translation of the word, but I think the word has a little bit more punch in Greek. Like when I hear distracted, I'm thinking like, uh, Martha was like, I'm definitely going to go sit at the feet of Jesus, but oh my goodness, I can smell the bread is burning in the kitchen. I'll be right back. That's not really what the word means. Uh, The word literally means something like dragged away. Like think like a horror movie. Somebody's reaching and someone's pulling them by the ankles. That's the kind of picture we're talking about. She was pulled. She was yanked. She was controlled by all these other things that she was trying to do. If you're filling in blanks, that's the next blank for us. Martha was controlled by all the things that were going on in her life. And this is a huge insight for us and actually something that Christians can uniquely attest to. Christians are willing to say that we know all people are really at some level controlled. We like to think in Western society that we have a certain amount of autonomy, that we make our own choices, that we have free will. And that's not totally untrue, but we often disregard the fact that we are controlled by so many different things. Let me give you a couple dumb examples and then I'll give you a a profound one. How many of you have just eaten because it was the time to eat, not because you were hungry? You're controlled by your schedule. How many of you have turned the TV on even though there was nothing to watch? You're controlled by the entertainment. How many of you have pulled your phone out of your pocket even though it was not vibrating or ringing? You're controlled by the device. There's so many things about our life that we just do. And I'm going to get to a point where I say, like, that's not totally all wrong, but we have to admit that about ourselves. Like, we do not have control of ourselves a lot of the time. Let me go a little bit deeper, though, with you. I would hazard a guess. I can say this with almost certainty. That even some of the most profound things you think about yourself are not things you chose. Like, you might think at some level, okay, I chose who I married, for example. Or I chose where I work, or I chose where I live, or I I choose what I do in my free time. Maybe. Or maybe somebody told you that that was a good idea. Somebody said, I really like her. I'm pretty sure he's the one. Somebody says, you would be really good in finance or really good in technology. Somebody said, there's really good jobs in the Toronto area. Or our family has been here for decades. I think it's pretty rare that we actually make a decision completely out of the blue. In almost every single case, somebody told us this would be a good idea and then we justified it to ourselves. We're controlled by the opinions, maybe even the dictates of other people. Of course, we as Christians know this goes to a spiritual level. The Bible very clearly talks about how we are by nature children of the devil. We are under his control, under demonic possession, you might even say. And yet our baptism and the faith that we receive by the preaching of the word is what sets us free to be possessed, as the Bible says, literally slaves of Jesus Christ, to be controlled by him. So we have to all admit, we we are all controlled. The question is, by whom? Are we controlled by the dictates of our culture, our family, the status that we want to have, the expectations that people have of us, the temptations of Satan, the desire for sin, Or are we controlled by the word of God, which tells us how to live, which compels us, the Bible says. Martha was controlled. It was not that she just lost consciousness of a certain thing that was happening. It was that she was, in some sense, against her will, pulled away from the one thing that was needful. Well, we'll find out why. 
We'll find out by seeing that Martha had a dissonant relationship with God and with herself. Do you understand the concept of dissonance? Dissonance is uh, maybe most obviously seen in music. So if Will is playing the guitar here today and one of the strings on his guitar is out of tune, you will hear music coming from his guitar, but it will not sound pleasant. Right? There will be that constant ringing, that uncomfortability, that thing that makes you kind of cringe as he plays because the notes are dissonant. It's still music, it's just not right. And that's what Martha had with God and with herself. She had a relationship with God, she had a relationship with Jesus. It was just dissonant. It was off-center. It was missing the mark. And she had a relationship with herself, of course, but that too was a little bit off. And as you know, if you've ever listened to dissonance for any length of time, it will at the very least give you a headache, at the most drive you completely mad. So let's see what happened to her. As Martha is distracted by all the preparations that need to be made, she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. In this, we see her dissonant relationship with God. Look at that statement, Lord, don't you care? Do you see the dissonance in that statement? Lord, master, controller of all things, all-powerful God of the universe who has never done anything but love and provide for me, who thinks of my best in all situations, who from eternity past has elected me to salvation and is making sure all things work out for the good of those who love you. Lord, don't you care? Do you hear the dissonance? I heard one pastor describe it like this. Sometimes in human relationships we do this. We use a term of endearment when we're about to say something not very endearing. You ever done this? Sweetheart, that's not a parking spot. (laughs) Honey, you don't punch your brother. Why do we do that? Because we want to communicate to a person that even though what we're about to say is really ticking us off, we still love them, right? And that works in human relationships because it turns out the people that you love are both sinner and saint. You love them dearly and they are going to sin against you, irritate you maybe more than anybody else. But not with God. Because God has never irritated you. At least not intentionally. He has never tried to do you wrong. He has only always, all uh, all the time, loved you and forgiven you and provided for you. There should be no reason for you to have to use a term of endearment before you say something not so endearing to God. And yet that is exactly what Martha did. See, the many things of her life, the day-to-day things that she really cared about, and here she says, the work, right? The preparations, the things that I care about that were even good things, right? Diakonia, good service. They had crowded out her relationship with her God. They had functionally become the God of her universe, and she wanted Jesus to get on board with it. And this is the challenge for us as Christians. We often care about things so much that we want God to get on board with them rather than they get on board with God. We ask the tough questions, God, why aren't I married? I'm a good Christian man or or woman. I should be able to find a Christian spouse, but, but you put me in this city or you didn't bring anybody into my path. God, I want to retire comfortably. I, I even want to be generous in my retirement, but but you're letting the economy crash, and I'm not sure how much I'm going to have when I retire. God, I want to work a good job. I want to work hard for the good reason of providing for my family and being generous with my offerings and generous with my community, but I can't seem to find a good job to hold down. God, I don't want to be in pain. 
I don't want my body to hurt every time I get out of bed because I want to be a servant to my spouse or my children or my, my extended family. I want to be active at church and in the community, but, but I hurt. It's very often these even really good things that we desire that God would get on board with rather than we get on board with God. Martha had a dissonant relationship with God because of the daily practices that she had, focusing on these little things that may be good, but weren't God. She also had a dissonant relationship with herself. Jesus answers this question from Martha by saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. These two words, worried and upset, are worth our time for a bit. Now, the word worried is a fine translation again, but I think it a maybe more colloquial way or the way that we would talk about it today is anxiety. Martha, Martha, you are anxious. What is anxiety? From everything that I read and everything that I've talked to people who study this, um, it's this undue fear over something that's not necessarily threatening me right now. It's the, the constant feeling that things are going wrong or about to go wrong even though nothing around me is testifying to that truth. One way somebody has described it to me is like this. Uh, like if you step out into a crosswalk and then a car runs a red light in front of you, you know the feeling you would have? Like your heart starts to race and the adrenaline is coursing through your body and your pupils are dilated and you're like shaking a little bit. Five minutes later, you don't feel like that. Unless you're anxious. Anxiety is that same feeling again and again and again far after the car is gone. Now, again, I, I have not personally struggled with anxiety all that much in my life, so those of you who have can tell me differently, but that's what I've heard. Jesus says that you're anxious. You're unduly worried about things that don't actually matter, that aren't actually present. And so I want to be really gentle, but also really firm when I say this. If you struggle with anxiety, or really any other thing like this, depression, bipolar, anything, you need to repent of it. It's a sin. Like Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, which I think is as clear as you can get. It's a sin. It's not what God wants for you. And I think what people will react to me by saying is, well, I can't control it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just anxious. That's, that's what I am. And I would say, exactly, and that's the problem. Exactly you can't control it. You're a sinful person. You are corrupted by nature, and you're not getting any less sinful. You might be able to curtail the effects of your sin around other people to bless them, but you're not getting less sinful. In some sense, exactly you can't control it. None of us can control it. That's the point. We're not here because we're getting better. We're here because we're messed up, and we need a Savior. Repentance is not me saying, God, I'm going to get better. It's me saying, God, I have no hope. Please save me. And secondly, that attitude is part of the problem. Isn't it true that when we struggle with something like anxiety or depression or anything like this, it becomes our identity? It becomes who we think ourselves to be. I'm just an anxious person. I'm always depressed. And we use it as an excuse to do terrible things to other people, to ignore them, to not care about them, to not answer them politely. I'm just an anxious person. It was just my anxiety. I was just depressed that day. It's a sin. And you might not be able to control it. Welcome to the club, sinner as I am. But we need to repent. 
And I'll actually press you a little bit farther. When we are willing to repent, we find out that we have a different identity. You might struggle with anxiety. You might struggle with depression. But you are not those things. You are baptized. You are paid for. You are loved eternally. You're only going to be in this body and mind for a couple more decades, and then you are going to live eternally with nothing like it. You are not who you say you are when you identify yourself with your mental illness. And when you lean into that, I actually find that many people, while they may still struggle, I'm not saying the struggle is going to go away, but I am saying they find a resource to deal with that struggle that is unlike anything any cognitive behavioral therapy or psycho drug will give you. It's the power of God to see, I might feel this way sometimes, but that's not who I am. So Martha was anxious. She was worried. She was unduly afraid of many things, and she was upset. Upset, I think, actually is a really good English translation for this word. It's powerful, right? It's to literally turn something over. If you have a bowl filled with food and you turn it over, that is a mess. That is an upset bowl. The word actually in Greek comes, uh, is the same word that we use as a basis for the English word thrombosis. Maybe you know this from medical terms. It is to throw something into chaos or into cacophony. Do you know this term, cacophony? It is the idea of many different sounds all at the same time, which cover over each other so you can't understand any one of them. For example, in about maybe half an hour or so, you're all going to be around here, and you're all going to be talking to one another, and you're going to hear a whole bunch of voices, mostly speaking English, and you're going to be able to understand words or bits and pieces of any one of those conversations, but you won't be able to understand all of them because it's a cacophony. It's all these sounds, and you can't hear all of them at the same time. And that does one of two things to a person. It completely disorients them, right? Because they start listening to one conversation and they start listening to another conversation. You've ever had this happen where you're listening to somebody and somebody over here is saying something and you think it's kind of interesting and so you're, you're trying to focus but you're still listening? Or it just completely stresses people out, right? If you're one of those people who struggles from hear, like having a lot of stimulus in your life, you get into a place where there's a lot of noise and you lose it. That's what he's talking about. You are thrown into the cacophony of the world, Martha. Isn't this true for us, though? Not just in the half an hour or so that we sit around here and talk to one another, cacophony of happy voices after worship, but the many voices that we hear in the world around us that are telling us what we ought to think, believe, do, say. We think of what our parents expect us to be. We hear that voice. We think of what our friends expect us to be, we hear that voice. We think about what our work expects us to be, we hear that voice. We watch our favorite news channel and they tell us what to think. We listen to our favorite podcaster or YouTuber and they tell us how to be. And all these voices together, while none of them might necessarily be wrong or untrue, they become a cacophony. And we run around chasing everyone's expectations of us, every word that everyone says. And so we do one of two things. We'd go nowhere because we're chasing every different voice or we could become completely stressed out. That's what Jesus is saying to Martha. Martha, you got so many voices right now that are telling you so many things to do and it is throwing you into confusion and stress and you don't need it. What's he going to say? One thing is needful, right? That's what he's going to say later. And so I know this is a hobby horse for me, but it's a hobby horse because everything I read and see tells me that we need to be talking about this. Turn off your screens. Turn them off. Not forever. I'm not saying that. I'm not a legalist. But turn them off sometimes. Because the screens continue to preach at you many different voices that lead us to the stress, the cacophony that many of us feel. 
How am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to believe? It's the many things around us, right? The last thing I want you to notice is the many things that Jesus says. You're worried and you're upset about many things. Isn't it true that there's just a lot of stuff? (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in our life that brings on that anxiety, it brings on that worry, it brings on that upset cacophony. What if we simplified? And he said, fewer things, the most important things, wouldn't that bring us back into a harmonious relationship with ourselves? Just to go one step farther on this, maybe none of you will care about this, but some of you I think will. Isn't it interesting that every other world religion and many forms of Christianity have multiple voices of truth? And yet true Christianity only has one voice? You might even say, well, what about those monotheistic religions? Like, I know Hinduism has a thousand gods, but what about like Islam or Judaism? They have multiple sources of truth too. You don't just look at the Quran, you also look at the Hadith. You don't just look at the Old Testament, you also look at the Talmud. There are all these extra voices, and even many forms of Christianity have this, right? Not just the Bible, but also the words of our anointed prophet, or not just the Bible, but the words of our bishop. True Christianity has one voice. It is not a cacophony. While all other forms of religion are a cacophony, Christianity is not. It is one voice. The fact is for Martha that her life crowded out Jesus. Everything that was going on around her, the many things that she cared about, many of them very good, crowded out Jesus. Which brings us to Mary. Mary, that one whom Jesus said was great. Her story would be told for generations. Uh, Mary is kind of an interesting character, too. Again, I kind of thought of her as very, like, clear-cut. Like, Jesus came in the house, and Mary was immediately at his feet listening. I don't think that's actually the case. I don't think that's where the text leads us. When Martha comes to Jesus, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? When she says left me, she's implying that Mary was at one time doing the work with her. Mary didn't just go straight to Jesus' feet. She was doing the work until Jesus started talking. And then she moved to Jesus' feet. And some people will read this text and they'll say, the most important thing, in fact, the only thing that you need to do is just listen to God's word. I don't think that's what the text teaches. I think the text teaches us, do good service, work at good things, enjoy the blessings of creation, fill your life with all the things that God has given you, just have godly priorities. But the most important things first in your life. When Jesus is talking, you are listening. You can do all sorts of great service, and many of you do, but What's most important? And of course, there are a thousand ways we can think about this, but I'll just give you maybe one or two. As you think about how you make decisions in life, do you first think about what God thinks about them? An easy decision to make in life without God is moving, isn't it? I need to move for a job or because I can't afford the city or whatever the thing is, I don't like the traffic. But we don't think about it from God's perspective. What does God want for us? First and foremost, God wants us in a a faithful congregation where we're going to be every Sunday to hear God's word and to receive his sacrament. He wants us to invest in the people who need to hear that word besides ourselves. And aren't most of them in cities? And you could go down the list, but the point is to illustrate that very quickly we can make decisions without thinking about what God wants. Even good decisions, even decisions that might bless us, we, we do it without God. Or maybe even just for Sunday morning. Like there are a hundred different things you could do on Sunday morning. But God wants you here. 
That's what we committed to. As a congregation, we said, if we're going to be members of this church, we're going to be here every Sunday. How quickly it is, we can give it up because, well, we had a party on Saturday night, or that's when I can get my shifts, or it's a hard drive, it's hard to get up in the morning, whatever the excuse is. Some of those things are good, but they're not godly. And so I'm going to challenge you. Like, if, if coming to worship this morning is a challenge, or maybe for some of you who are watching online, you feel that way, like maybe it's time to get a different job. Maybe it's time to move. Maybe it's time to quit that thing that you're doing on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's time to leave early from the party on Saturday. I don't, I don't know what it is. But what Mary shows us is that she had godly priorities. She did things. She cared about things. But she put God first. She also saw that she would do that because it's what she needed. Jesus says this, right? He says, Man, few things are needed, but really only one. It's my word. And Mary knew that. She knew what she needed. There are many things that she wanted. There are many things that she enjoyed. There are many ways that she could serve. And all those were well and good. They were, they were blessings. But there's one thing that was necessary. And if we could change our mindset to say, there's one thing, and then there's all the other things, we would have the same attitude that Mary had. Now notice that this isn't the only time Mary does this. If you look at where Mary shows up in the rest of the Gospels, you'll see that every single time she is at Jesus' feet, it was the daily or regular practice for her to listen to God talk. And that is how she became the person whom Jesus said what she has done will be told about her for generations to come. Friends, if we want to be a church that lasts for generations, if we want to be Christians who have peace in a world of chaos and cacophony, it'll be by the little things. Those daily, weekly practices of being here, opening a Bible, studying with Christian friends, praying, listening to Christian music, whatever it is, to focus your mind on the one thing that is needed in your life. In contrast to Martha, Mary's Jesus crowded out her life. She found Jesus to be her life. Jesus to be the one who everything centered on and could see the results. Which brings us finally to Jesus. We've seen Martha, we've seen how she was distracted, controlled, pulled away by so many things so that she had a dissonant relationship with God and with herself. We see the, the composure, the wholeness, the peace that Mary has in the regular hearing of God's word. Finally, we see Jesus. The one quote that we get from Jesus in this text is at the end of it where he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, only indeed one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will, be not, it will not be taken away from her. A couple things to notice in this text. First, the doubling of the name. Martha, Martha. We don't really get this because we speak English mostly, but in Semitic languages, to double the name is to give it an extra oomph, a little endearment in it. It's a loving way of talking. You can think of uh, maybe when David calls out to his son, Absalom, Absalom, or Jesus on the cross yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martha, Martha. There's a smile in Jesus' face. There's a compassion in his heart for Martha. And the same is true for you. If you realize how distracted, how pulled away, how following the cacophony of this world you have become, know that Jesus has compassion on you. And he's going to call you out for your sin, your upset, and your worry, and he's going to tell you there is only one thing needful. There is a way out of this, but he's also going to say this, that what Mary has chosen will not be taken away from her. And the word will not be taken away from you either. In fact, I think there's a really easy way to read this text that will leave you feeling very guilty. And that is to look at Mary and say, I need to be more like Mary. That's the law, friends. 
That's the law that convicts you. You will go back to your life and you'll say, I'm not a good enough Mary. Guess what you just did? You became Martha again. The good news is that God is talking to you right now. The rest of your day, it's an imaginary story you're telling yourself about a future that you can't control. But right now, Jesus is talking and you're sitting at his feet. And isn't it beautiful? Isn't it lovely to hear of one who loves you unconditionally? Isn't it empowering to hear of one who sees you as valuable and purposeful in a world where three million people in this city don't know your name? Isn't it comforting to know that somebody who can actually fix your problems knows about them and has promised to fix them? You can only hear that here. So come back. Not because you have to, but because you can. Because Jesus will be here talking. It won't be taken away from you. You can always enjoy it.